I'm delighted to be here, very honoured to be invited to speak to your group today. And it's also very nice to see um, a few faces and a few names um, amongst the group that I recognise and particularly nice to uh, connect back with you, Catherine, um, from our Nottingham days um, quite, some, quite some years ago now. Um, I have um, a set of slides which I will um, <clears throat> endeavour to share uh, with you. So um, <clears throat> let me know if this doesn't work. <clears throat> uh, let me just get rid of that. <clears throat> oh, there we go. Um, hopefully that has worked. So the title of my um, presentation today um, is uh, Law of the Sea in the uh, Plasticine. And um, it's really on um, an area that I've um, quite recently got into and I've been working on a book chapter and it is um, somewhat of a work in progress. I was just saying to Natasha and Catherine that I had hoped to in fact have this completed some weeks ago, but it's been a little bit more recent than I was anticipating. So I really look forward to um, the discussion and some um, feedback from you. I'd be very interested um, in your thoughts. Um, so the focus, as I say, is, is really thinking about um, how the law of the sea is able to respond um, in the age which <clears throat> perhaps has been um, entitled the Plasticine really in a nod to the level of plastics uh, in the ocean and indeed their, uh, <clears throat> their, their durability. <clears throat> Just see if I can move this on. There we go. Um, so plastics, of course, are ubiquitous in terms of our society. Invented a mere 110 years ago, one of my favourite facts is that, in fact, production has grown a thousandfold over the last hundred years, which has grossly outpaced um, economic development um, and, indeed, growth in human population. And um, that said, about half of all plastics, in fact, has been produced simply since um, 2000. 49% uh, of plastics is produced in Asia, with 28% being produced by China, and about half of all plastics are discarded after a single use, which kind of indicates the level of the problem. Um, it's estimated that cumulative production of plastic exceeds uh, 8,000 million metric tonnes, and 79% of that is found in either landfills or um, the natural environment, um, including the ocean. So this really is quite a significant environmental problem uh, that we are facing. Um, it's been estimated and really a seminal study that should read seminal as opposed to seminar uh, seminal study um, <clears throat> conducted or published in 2015 estimated in 2010 alone between 4.8 and 12.7 million metric tons of plastic waste entered the oceans and they're now actually considered to be a geological marker of the Anthropocene as being something that's actually going to appear in the future uh, fossil record. Um, we tend to think about plastics in the context of the ocean as being macroplastic, so kind of those larger pieces that you can see, such as plastic bags, bottles and so forth. Um, microplastics, uh, which often um, come from uh, washing of clothes and other very tiny bits of plastics, and then the nanoplastics, which tend to result uh, from the breakdown of oceans, uh, sorry, the breakdown of um, plastics in the oceans. Uh, one of the interesting things um, about plastic in the oceans is that actually there's a lot of uncertainty about not only the amount of plastic in the oceans, but essentially how it comes to um, enter the oceans and where it uh, enters up. Um, 
It's often considered that 80% of plastics um, comes from uh, the land with only 20% uh, from sea-based activities, but actually other studies or some studies dispute this and suggest that 50% of the plastic in the oceans um, is from fishing vessels. So there's kind of quite a lot of uncertainty actually um, about the sources of the problem. Um, it is believed that most plastic ends up on the sea floor. Uh, one estimate puts it as high as 94%, um, but others are between 50 and um, uh, 70%. Um, in terms of sort of floating plastics, which actually is a relatively small proportion of the plastics in the oceans, um, probably the most visible, um, or at least the uh, area that is most well known is the, uh, the great, great being an um, <laughs> interesting term there, uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and that's the largest aggregation of um, surface ocean uh, plastics um, essentially uh, in the Pacific. But there's actually quite significant quantities of plastic waste uh, in the Bay of Bengal um, and in uh, the uh, Gulf of Mexico and the South China Sea. And uh, interestingly, it's been relatively recently identified um, that the North Atlantic um, thermaline um, circulation has been described as a plastic conveyor belt, essentially transferring plastic from other parts of the ocean into the Greenland, Norwegian and Barents Sea. So even kind of quite isolated areas are now uh, <clears throat> being affected by plastic pollution. And it's just perhaps worth noting that plastic has been found in the deepest place on Earth, in the Mariana Trench, um, and also in some of the most rem uh, um, remotest places. So uh, Henderson Island in the Pitcairn Group um, has the dubious honour of being the most densely uh, plastic populated uh, island, with about, I think, 37 million pieces of plastic being located uh, in, a, in a recent study. And of course, it's, it's difficult really to... Uh, give any sort of a presentation without kind of mentioning COVID-19 as the pandemic. Um, and it's actually highly relevant to the plastic pollution. So um, in addition to sort of the sources that we're used to, uh, we've added um, significant quantities of plastic um, associated with um, personal protective equipment, PPE, um, into the oceans. One estimate is around 25,000 um, tonnes and um, uh, 1.56 million uh, face masks were believed to enter the oceans in 2020 alone. So we are essentially um, adding to and increasing uh, the problem of plastics in the oceans. Uh, with respect to their potential impacts, um, they are uh, myriad. Um, really, it was a sort of 60 years ago that we started to worry about the impacts of plastic in the context of entanglement and seabirds. That was sort of in the 1960s and the 1970s, concerns were expressed over the toxicity of plastics and the extent to which they enter the food chain and the um, implications of both uh, leaching contaminants and indeed drawing in uh, other contaminants. Um, in the 1980s, uh, beach fouling was uh, quite a high profile uh, issue. Um, other threats include um, facilitating the introduction of invasive species. Uh, the 2011 Asian tsunami was quite a, a revealing event in that it was estimated that about 289 invasive species made it into US waters from Asian waters on the back of the debris caused by the tsunami. So we're now um, aware that invasive species can essentially use plastic as uh, vectors uh, to transport themselves. Um, the introduction of disease is another concern, the toxicity, um, and also ghost fishing 
which is a consequence of an activity or essentially from um, arising from um, discarded fishing gear. So nets and um, <clears throat> other fishing gear can essentially continue to fish uh, potentially for decades um, as a consequence of, um, of discarded gear. So in terms of sort of thinking about this from a sort of a legal point of view, um, there's no um, one or there's no currently at the moment, uh, there's no overarching institution um, or uh, regime which manages ocean plastics or indeed plastics more generally. Um, but what we do have is actually quite a large number of instruments and regimes that are directly and indirectly relevant. And I've um, included um, not an exhaustive list, but a number um, here, which um, some of which I have looked at um, in the context of my book chapter. So really plastics are a sort of a quintessential transboundary and commons problem. So they essentially um, are transported. So it requires states to try to cooperate and collaborate. So hence in sort of the, the realm of international and regional law is really important in conjunction with those uh, national, um, <clears throat> national legislation and national measures. So a regime complex is something I've explored in sort of other contexts, and it seems to fit um, particularly well here. So the idea of a sort of a regime complex is that we're dealing with functionally overlapping parallel regimes and institutions, which are non-hierarchical, but which nevertheless affect one another's sphere of operations. And actually, regime complex seems to operate in a number of um, ocean contexts. So I've explored them in the past in relation to, for example, uh, ocean um, acidification. In relation to uh, plastics, the regime complex very much comprises both binding and non-binding or soft law and voluntary initiatives. So there are a large number of um, instruments which we would describe as soft as operating um, within the plastics uh, regime uh, um, uh, complex. Um, I'm going to be focusing on essentially the law of the sea in terms of part of that regime complex and that's partly because the book that I am writing for is a book on plastics so there are obviously other chapters which are picking up uh, other aspects of it so certainly general environmental law um, chemical conventions such as Basel, Stockholm, Rotterdam and um, biodiversity instruments would all be relevant to that regime complex um, but I'm going to focus um, for the purposes of this presentation um, on the um, uh, um, primarily on the law of the sea uh, broadly defined. Of course, you're probably aware of a pretty exciting uh, development which occurred uh, earlier <coughs> this year, um, a couple of months ago, um, was the decision or the resolution adopted by the United Nations Environment Assembly um, to initiate negotiations um, towards adopting an internationally legally binding instrument on plastics. Now, this will not simply focus on uh, marine plastic pollution. It is designed to focus on uh, plastics as a whole. So quite an exciting development and obviously something which is going to add uh, to that uh, regime complex. So one of the things I want to do in this presentation um, is to explore a little bit as to how this new treaty might add to that regime complex and essentially what contribution it potentially might make um, with respect um, to, to preventing and indeed mitigating uh, marine plastic pollution. 
So thinking about um, the law of the sea and uh, marine plastic pollution, as I say, there's no overarching uh, oceans institution um, <clears throat> which has uh, a mandate to deal with um, all aspects of marine pollution. Um, but nevertheless, marine litter and plastics has now been considered by a number of global bodies. Um, and there are a number of sort of overarching um, objectives and targets which have broadly um, been adopted. Um, so, for example, um, it's been considered uh, by the United Nations open-ended consultative process on oceans and the law of the sea. Um, for those of you that are not aware, this is a process um, whereby uh, annual meetings are held really to consider substantive issues in the law of the sea. Um, and that uh, reflects the fact that the uh, law of the sea convention, whilst it has a meeting of the parties and does not uh, generally consider substantive issues. Um, it is now a regular item, and it has been a regular item since about 2005, on the United Nations General Assembly's annual resolution on oceans and the law of the sea. And since 2016, it's been subject to quite significant discussion within that resolution. So a number of paragraphs um, have been devoted to the issue of marine litter and plastics, including microplastics. And that has increased really over the last few years. Um, plastic pollution, of course, has been highlighted in some of the key um, environmental um, United Nations General Assembly resolutions, so Agenda 21 and the Rio Plus 20 uh, resolution. And of course, in the Sustainable Development Goals, which were adopted in 2015, um, SDG target 14.1 um, uh, refers specifically to reduce uh, to marine pollution and exhorting states to prevent and significantly reduce marine pollution um, with a specific reference to land-based pollution and including uh, marine debris. So in terms of, sort of a bit of a snapshot um, of uh, <clears throat> the um, regime complex, and I'm not going to talk um, in a huge amount of detail about any of these instruments, I can um, kind of go into them in questions, but I don't want to do it simply to give you a very detailed overview, but just to give you a bit of a snapshot. Um, we tend to divide uh, plastics pollution into land-based and sea-based sources, and that's really because the rules are quite different in terms of how they apply, depending on the source of the plastic. Um, UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which of course was adopted in 1982, um, entered into force in 1994, and 168 parties, uh, part 12 of which is customary international law, so basically sets the framework for all marine pollution and uh, marine environmental protection um, activities. Um, so that certainly applies um, in the general terms uh, to uh, plastic pollution, and I will have a look at some of those provisions um, in just a moment. Um, in terms of uh, global uh, instruments, um, as we shall see in relation to land-based pollution, we're largely talking about soft instruments. Uh, we do now have an increasing number of initiatives, but what we are lacking um, is globally legally binding um, targets or rules with respect to land-based pollution. Um, we do have at the regional level um, a much more uh, mixed normative picture in terms of both binding and indeed non-binding um, uh, measures, uh, largely through action plans. 
Uh, by contrast, with respect to sea-based uh, sources of plastic pollution, we actually have a pretty tight uh, global regime in terms of what the basic rules and requirements are. Uh, but I think here is where we run into problems with respect to implementation uh, and compliance. And I'm just going to pull out a few of those issues um, as, we, as we go through. So starting off with um, UNCLOS, uh, which I think it's probably um, appropriate to do, all sort of law of the sea scholars um, sort of begin uh, with UNCLOS, uh, we have basically a general obligation to prevent and preserve, uh, to protect and preserve the marine environment, um, and a general obligation uh, to take measures to address marine pollution from any source. So no specific reference to plastics there, but a general obligation uh, to address pollution from any source. Uh, Pollution is defined under Article 1, Paragraph 4 of UNCLOS, and I think we can be very confident uh, that pollution would, uh, plastic would essentially meet that definition uh, of pollution. Um, in terms of uh, land-based sources of pollution, um, UNCLOS essentially takes something of a sectoral approach. So it identifies particular sources of pollution and its uh, obligations vary depending on that particular source. Um, Article 207 is the provision which applies to um, uh, which applies to uh, land-based uh, sources of pollution, and actually it's one of the weaker provisions uh, within the convention. So there is an obligation, states do need to adopt laws and regulations to prevent, reduce and control pollution essentially from land-based sources, um, but they need only take into account internationally agreed rules, standards and recommended practices. So these are relevant to be considered by states, but they don't provide any form of um, uh, basic standards. Um, the obligation is a due diligence one, so it's an obligation of conduct as opposed to an obligation of result. Um, and due diligence has been defined in a law of the sea context um, as an obligation to deploy um, adequate means to exercise essentially best efforts to do the utmost to obtain this result. Um, and I would also argue that uh, the precautionary approach, which whilst it's not expressly um, referred to within UNCLOS, would be relevant uh, to uh, obligations with respect to land-based sources of pollution um, as part of uh, general uh, international law. So in terms of sort of those standards, so thinking about what those standards might be, and it's just worth noting um, that they don't necessarily have to be uh, legally binding um, as being relevant to be taken into account because Article 207 does refer to recommended uh, practices and procedures. And I perhaps also should mention that Article 207 also specifically refers um, to toxic uh, materials and essentially toxic um, and persistent waste, um, which has a specific uh, relevance to practice, uh, to do plastics. So in terms of sort of those uh, international standards, um, as I say, we don't have binding international standards in contrast to uh, seabed sources of pollution. Uh, what we do have um, is essentially a normative um, but non-binding instrument. So the 1995 Washington Declaration um, which uh, 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 is associated with the uh, Global Programme for Action.
Um, so the GPA um, refers to plastic, so plastics are certainly part uh, of its remit, um, and it provides for a general uh, obligation to reduce significantly the amount of litter reaching the marine environment by prevention. Uh, or reducing the generation of waste. Uh, what it does not do is set discharge standards um, or provide um, very specific uh, guidance as to what states uh, might do. And I quite like um, a very recent chapter by Rosemary Rafuse um, in a book looking at informal lawmaking in the law of the sea. Um, she describes the GPA as providing a suggestive and non-prescriptive smorgasbord of choices from which parties can choose should they feel so inclined. And I think that perhaps sums up uh, the uh, extremely sort of soft and permissive um, uh, set of provisions that are provided for within the, within the GPA. What the GPA has done, or essentially what it has provided, is, is something of a framework um, or a foundation um, for the development of subsequent um, initiatives, which do address much more specifically the issue of plastic pollution, but are nevertheless non-binding. Um, so and I've just given a few examples there, I'm not going to say anything about the details of those, but we've got the sort of the Honolulu strategy adopted in 2011, um, implemented essentially through the UNEP Global Partnership on Marine Litter, um, and then sort of further supported by the UNEP uh, Clean Seas Programme adopted in 2017. Um, quite recently, uh, the uh, Glow Litter Partnership, which I quite like as, a, as an acronym, uh, which is a, um, a, um, a collaboration between the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization and the IMO in relation to uh, fishing discards. Um, I think what we can say in relation to sort of generally about those programs um, is that they tend to be um, collaborative in the sense that they are seeking to engage um, all sectors. So seeking to um, connect private NGO uh, state actors, uh, none however, um, provide for mandatory standards or mandatory action. Um, and I think we can say that there's a kind of a lack of global oversight and monitoring, although UNEP essentially has stepped in as being the, the leading body in relation to land-based sources of pollution, at least um, to this point. In terms of regional initiatives, uh, and this isn't necessarily a complete list, and I'd be interested if I've missed any um, particular region, but I think it just uh, demonstrates um, the interest that uh, regional seas organisations have really taken in this issue, and particularly in the last few years, so from 2018, there have been quite a number which have been um, established. Um, so really sort of Northwest Pacific, Europe, Mediterranean. Mediterranean was the first uh, legally binding uh, marine litter management program. Caribbean, Northeast Atlantic, Baltic, the Black Sea, now the Pacific, um, East Asia, Southeast Asia, and just uh, very recently in the last uh, in the last few weeks, um, sorry, in the last year or so, uh, the Arctic. Uh, interestingly, Africa, of course, is a region missing there, and it's quite significant in terms of potential contribution to the waste problem. Um, but there are um, developments afoot, as it were, for developing a marine litter plan uh, by the uh, Nairobi Convention for East Africa and the Abidjani uh, Convention for West Africa. So there are other areas which are essentially being um, developed. So that essentially is sort of land-based sources of pollution in terms of the current regime, um, so pretty soft 
Um, obviously legally binding obligations under UNCLOS, but not much in the way of um, specific detail. And I think the lack of those international standards have certainly allowed states um, to perhaps uh, not focus on their UNCLOS obligations in quite the same way as they have in relation to um, sea-based sources of pollution. So thinking about sea-based uh, sources of pollution, this is where uh, the rules become uh, much, uh, much clearer. Uh, basically, we've got two regimes at play. The dumping regime, which of course applies to the deliberate disposal um, of waste, including plastic waste at sea. And then we have the regime which applies to vessel source pollution. So essentially an um, accidental loss or loss associated with the operation uh, of the vessel. So it's Articles 210 and Articles 211 of UNCLOS uh, respectively. Now, both of those are different from Article 207 in that both identify um, international rules and standards which are relevant and they require their states or they require state parties to essentially apply those international rules and standards at as a minimum. Um, and that's essentially set out within both Article 210 and Article 211. For Article 211, it's quite clear uh, what, the, uh, what the standards are or what those standards are in relation to plastics. Uh, that would be the 1973-78 MARPOL Convention, the International Marine Pollution uh, Convention. Um, it's a little bit more complicated in the context of the London Convention because we actually have two instruments. We have a convention uh, and a protocol. Certainly applies to the London Convention, possibly might apply to the protocol. I would argue it does. I'm not going to go into that here. I've written a book chapter recently on the London regime and I'm really happy to talk to you about it in questions. Actually, from the perspective of plastics, it doesn't really matter uh, because the rules are actually pretty much the same uh, in relation to plastics under both instruments. Um, couple of uh, points that are sort of quite interesting about UNCLOS. Um, Article 218, which for those of you doing Law of the Sea may be familiar with, um, of course provides an opportunity for port states um, to take action in respect of vessel source pollution uh, on the high seas. So that actually provides potentially a useful enforcement mechanism um, to supplement flag state enforcement mechanism. And of course, in relation to both dumping and vessel discharges we're largely reliant on the flag state with all the advantages and disadvantages um, that that entails in terms of um, being able to enforce um, uh, marine pollution rules. So just taking a quick look um, at both of those regimes, um, starting off um, essentially with the dumping regime, as I say, reasonably straightforward, because in essentials, the dumping of plastic is prohibited under both the protocol uh, and the convention. And this also includes fishing vessels, um, and that would include the deliberate dumping um, of uh, fishing gear. Um, so the London Convention adopts an approach whereby waste listed in Annex 1 cannot be dumped and uh, plastics, persistent plastics are listed in Annex 1. Uh, the protocol adopts an approach uh, whereby waste that may be dumped is listed in Annex 1 with the presumption that no other waste can be dumped um, and plastics are not listed in Annex 1. Uh, the only kind of exception to this uh, may well be the actual disposal of vessels themselves, which is permitted under both instruments. And of course, that may include plastic within the hulls of those vessels. Um, there's an interesting question 
um, as to the extent to which the London regime applies to fishing gear, um, either the deliberate or potentially the accidental loss um, of fishing gear, including um, the fish aggregation devices, so FADs, um, and these are devices which are deliberately released into the sea. Sometimes they're anchored to the seabed, other times they are floating, um, and they're designed essentially to, um, to gather fish. Um, Robin Churchill has, has written a really interesting article um, in the 2021 Ocean Development and International Law, where he, I think, really convincingly argues um, that the deliberate um, abandonment of fishing gear and indeed fads, and his article is primarily on fads, um, would constitute dumping and therefore would be prohibited by the regime to the extent that the fishing gear and the fads um, contain plastic. So he argues that this would not constitute placement for a purpose other than mere disposal, and that it is not incidental to the normal operation of fishing vessels. And I find that argument uh, very convincing. So this is something which perhaps is not um, fully on the agenda of the parties, I think, to the London regime. So I think this is something which can be usefully uh, be developed. But the London regime does apply where fishing vessels are deliberately um, dumping or releasing their fishing gear. Um, it would not apply where we're talking about accidental loss, um, but it's possible um, that MARPOL may well apply or does apply in some circumstances there. Uh, it's worth noting that the London regime has taken quite a, a strong interest in plastics and marine litter, um, adopted um, a resolution in 2016, essentially um, requiring parties to think more generally about marine litter beyond the uh, dumping uh, context. In terms of um, the discharge of plastics from vessels, which again includes fishing vessels. Again, the regime is reasonably clear. So here we're essentially dealing with uh, the 1973-78 um, MARPOL, and in particular, the fifth annex, Annex 5, uh, which applies to the release of all the discharges of garbage. Uh, this originally came into force in 1988, but was revised um, in 2011. Um, again, it's broadly applicable, applies to all vessels, uh, including uh, fishing vessels. And again, it's specific specifically prohibits the discharge of plastics, um, and that includes ropes, fishing nets, um, plastic garbage bags, etc, um, etc. Et Again, in that same article, um, Robin uh, Churchill argues that this would include uh, fishing aggregation uh, devices. So again, the loss, including potentially the accidental loss in some circumstances of fishing aggregation devices um, would be um, prohibited or would be a breach uh, of uh, MARPOL. Now, there are some exceptions um, to the prohibition on the discharge of plastics. Uh, first, when it's necessary to save life uh, or the vessel. Um, and in respect of fishing gear, um, accidental loss um, is excluded from the annex where all reasonable precautions have been taken to prevent such loss. And I think that's a really important um, qualifier. So um, Annex 5 does apply to accidental loss, um, but only where reasonable precautions have been taken, um, would it not apply? Now, Marple does not define as to what reasonable um, precautions uh, might be, and in my chapter I do go into this um, a little bit, but I'm just conscious of time, so I'll, I'll leave it there, but we can perhaps come back in questions. Um, 
In addition to the basic prohibition um, on the discharge of plastics, uh, MARPA also provides an obligation on states to provide port reception facilities, um, so essentially uh, facilities to take the plastics and to take rubbish. And then for certain class of vessels, um, they must carry a garbage plan and a garbage record book and essentially um, record um, any loss uh, of garbage, including plastics. And the IMO has adopted an action plan to address marine litter, it adopted that in 2018 and made quite a number of recommendations, and particularly in relation to um, a system for declaring container loss, uh, marking fishing gear um, and providing incentives uh, for uh, the collection uh, of waste. So I think in relation to um, and uh, MARPOL, and similar with respect to the London dumping regime, um, the primary rules, the basic obligations are actually pretty robust. Um, but nevertheless, the level of um, plastics and particularly fishing gear that's located in the ocean indicates um, that implementation and enforcement um, is, is more of an issue. And I guess just sticking with fishing vessels for a moment, it's perhaps not surprising that this issue has also been taken up by uh, fishing organisations themselves. Um, so those of you familiar with the law of the sea will probably um, note that, of course, uh, Article 5F of the Fish Stocks Agreement, the United Nations um, Straddling and Highly Migrated Fish Stocks Agreement, um, has a brief provision um, calling upon states to minimise um, pollution by abandoned and lost gear. Um, Similar references in the 1991 Code of Conduct for Responsible uh, Fisheries and specifically about gear marking and providing reception uh, facilities. Um, the UN Food and Agricultural Organization has adopted a couple of soft um, initiatives, the Global Ghost Fishing Initiative in 2015 and voluntary guidelines for the marking of fishing gear uh, in uh, 2018. And an increasing number of regional fisheries management organisations have adopted um, resolutions and provisions um, which uh, deal with um, essentially uh, um, discarded and lost gear. And they're actually quite interesting. And again, for um, a matter of time, I'm not going to go through, but I'm really happy to kind of pick them up in questions. And I've put just a few examples there. And of course, once we get into our RFMOs, we have an enormous number of um, acronyms. Um, so the key ones, I think, are sort of CAMELA, the Western Central Pacific Fisheries Commission, the South Pacific uh, RFMO, um, Indian Ocean Tuna, uh, commission, which is quite interesting, that's addressed uh, FADS um, and of course the EU. Again, the issue seems to me around implementation and compliance, some quite practical measures with respect to things like storage um, and incentives for uh, gear retrieval. So moving on, and I'm just looking at the time, um, uh, this is sort of the final section and I suppose what I want to think about here is, well, we've got this um, regime complex which has on the one hand relatively robust obligations with respect to seabed uh, sources of plastic pollution but potentially quite poor implementation and compliance um, and on the other hand with respect to uh, land-based sources of pollution quite significant gaps and pretty soft uh, obligations so an question that i'm sort of beginning to think about and i'd be really welcome uh, your sort of thoughts on it i know that um, um, you're beginning to sort of some of you are beginning to look at this issue is well what would this new uh, plastic pollution treaty potentially add to the regime in relation to um, ocean plastics? And that's, of course, acknowledging that, that the treaty is designed to be much broader than simply marine uh, plastic pollution. 
Um, so this is obviously a bit of a speculation uh, on this part, um, but the um, United Nations Environment Assembly Resolution uh, 514 did set out um, quite a number of aims and parameters of the new instrument, so kind of giving us a bit of a steer um, as, to, as to what it may well focus on and sort of the approach it might take. Um, so I think we can accept, or at least the aim is, that it's designed to be comprehensive um, and going to address the full cycle, um, essentially, of plastics, um, and also the promotion of sustainable consumption production um, and sort of endorsing this idea of the circular economy. Uh, there's a specific reference that it can include binding and non-binding measures, which I think is quite interesting and suggests that potentially the model of the Paris Agreement might be uh, used. So the idea of um, overarching um, targets, but with potentially quite flexible provisions in terms of how states may choose to meet those targets. Um, it's going to provide for national reporting and assessment of implementation and effectiveness. So again, I think potentially taking a Paris type approach. Um, it will cooperate and coordinate with relevant international and regional plans, avoiding duplication. And this, I think, is going to be a really important component in that um, it'll be very important that it mustn't undermine existing provisions. Um, and for those of you sort of following the BBNJ negotiations, biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, um, that's been a really core um, kind of part of that uh, negotiation in terms of managing the BBNJ in the context of the various other regimes and institutions we have. Um, and then there's a reference there to compliance, uh, but I think very much a facilitative um, approach and also capacity building. Capacity building was actually included in the second paragraph um, of that resolution, so I think indicating uh, its importance. So in order to make it kind of an effective contribution, what, is it, what does it need to do? Well, this is something I'm sort of say, beginning to think about, but sort of um, I would suggest that there are a number of, uh, of, of things that it perhaps needs to do. Um, the first thing in my mind is that it really needs to set targets, binding targets with respect to um, land-based um, discharge of plastics, um, including uh, microplastics. Um, so we have, as I say, that plethora of international and regional initiatives, but what we don't have are any sort of binding standards or targets. And I think it would also be really useful to agree that those standards are relevant for the application of Article 207 of UNCLOS, because even though there's no requirement under Article 207 to meet any international standards. There is a requirement to take them into account. And I think you could argue quite strongly that applying a due diligence approach to the obligations under Article 207, those any standards which were essentially agreed would be part of that due diligence approach. And that would actually be quite an effective way of trying to bring any plastics treaty um, into effect, practical effect, uh, bearing in mind that it may well take a well to enter into force. Um, in terms of how you kind of set those targets, there are a couple of ways of doing it. A number of people that have thought about um, this treaty um, tend to think about it in the context of either the Paris Agreement model or the ozone protocol model. So the Paris Agreement model is where you've got that overall target 
But states have quite significant discretion as to how to meet that target. Um, and the instrument provides sort of the institutional infrastructure for review um, and essentially moving those targets along. Um, the alternative is the ozone protocol, where you have progressive substantive and temporal targets, which may well vary depending on the source of pollution, but also provide for flexible application, depending on the development uh, capacity of the state in question. So that I think will be a really significant uh, contribution. Um, the second point I'd make is that it would be vital that the instrument supports, but not undermines, to use that BBNJ terminology, um, existing law of the sea instruments. And I think that's really got to um, reflect and acknowledge that we actually do have quite a lot of robust law with respect to sea-based uh, sources of pollution, of pollution, of plastic pollution. So really what the new treaty should be doing is enhancing those rules. So filling gaps where we have them. So for example, perhaps providing global um, incentives for the retrieval of fishing gear, um, and also perhaps focusing on compliance, including the promotion of the use of existing mechanisms, because we actually do have quite a lot of existing mechanisms under Article 218 of UNCLOS um, on the use of port state powers under customary international law. But there's no real evidence that these are being used in the context of plastic pollution, in contrast to, for example, fisheries offences or um, safety of shipping. And then the third point um, is the, um, the contribution that it might make is really providing that global institutional infrastructure for the development of policy rules and processes. So we haven't really have or we don't have that overarching institutional infrastructure which is able to drive global uh, policy as well as providing mechanisms for financial and technical support. And I think it's really important to acknowledge, as many other commentators and people working in this field have, that ocean plastics is a multi-level, multi-sector, multi-actor issue. So really, um, these processes and institutions need to engage with actors um, across the board, which actually is something the law of the sea is not particularly good at. So the law of the sea is traditionally actually quite state-based and has struggled to engage with these other actors. And I think one interesting precedent um, is uh, the voluntary commitments which have been made really across all sectors um, as part of the UN Oceans Conference, which was held in 2017. Um, second one is due to be held in July this year. And it was really held as a follow-up um, in terms of implementation of SDG 14. And it provided for um, all sectors, states, uh, private organisations, NGOs, etc., um, to make voluntary commitments. And uh, over 1,700 commitments uh, have been made to date. And that's perhaps something which could be used as a precedent in relation to the new plastics uh, treaty. And it'd be worth noting, actually, that 700 of those commitments do relate to marine pollution with a good proportion uh, to plastic. So just, I think, to conclude, um, I think one of the interesting things is there's actually been almost what you describe as kind of frenetic, but certainly by international standards, which is obviously tends to be quite slow. Um, so compared to international standards, I'd say the activity has been quite frenetic uh, with respect to plastic pollutions over the last sort of five years. But it's really only loosely coordinated at best, and many would actually suggest that it's, it's pretty much uncoordinated. And there are significant gaps, particularly in relation to land-based pollution, and there are obvious challenges in relation to implementation. Um, and enforcement. 
So I think the new plastics treaty provides a really significant opportunity to address some of the shortcomings in the current ocean plastic pollution regime. Um, but it's going to be pretty challenging, um, particularly um, as the treaty intends to address plastics as a global pollutant. So really, the ocean marine is only kind of one one part of what the treaty is going to address. Um, there's been quite a bit of discussion, as I indicated, of kind of the Paris Agreement of the ozone protocol as providing models. Um, but I think it's actually also interesting to think about the current negotiations for the BBNJ agreement as potentially providing some quite useful lessons, um, particularly with respect to managing regime uh, interaction. Um, but actually just finishing on a sort of a practical note and, and thinking about the BBNJ negotiations, they are, of course, ongoing because they've been delayed owing to COVID. The uh, uh, most recent session has, has just uh, concluded. So it's actually going to be quite challenging to initiate um, another major set of international negotiations in the second part uh, of this year, particularly during a pandemic, um, given sort of the conflation of some of those issues. So it'd be interesting to see how much sort of appetite states have for beginning another uh, major set of negotiations. So that's really all I kind of had to say in terms of my sort of uh, initial kind of thoughts uh, with respect um, to both the ocean plastics regime and some of the potential um, opportunities but risks of a plastic um, treaty. But I'm really happy to take your questions and comments and to engage in a wee bit of discussion. So um, thank you very much for, for listening. <laughs>